May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. A reading from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father, when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but by men and women who, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This is the word of God. For the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe? only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place that was Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, says the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, just as I cast out all of your kinfolk, all of the offspring of Ephraim. This is the word of God for the people of God. The title of today's sermon is Between the World and Me, which is the title of a very popular book written by Tanasi Coates. But I would like to begin uh, today's sermon by quoting from W.B. Du Bois in his celebrated treatise, The Souls of Black Folk. Du Bois writes as follows. Between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All, nevertheless, flutter around it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then, instead of saying directly, How does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these, I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion may require. To the real question, How does it feel to be a problem? I seldom answer a word." End quote. I have always felt that there was a curtain, or as Du Bois describes it, a veil between myself and the world that I come from. I never fully noticed it when I was a child. I saw glimpses of it as a young adult. I wasn't specifically looking for it, and I was taught that whatever divided my community from the world could be mediated by hard work, a little luck, 
and faith. It wasn't until I was in graduate school and set aside the time to really analyze my own particular experience that I began to see this veil, that this veil became more apparent, more visible, and yet somehow untouchable. But once I could see it, once I could describe it, the division between the world and me caused by the veil, I began to see it everywhere, and I wondered why other people couldn't see it. I wondered if I was paranoid or if I was imagining things or if if I just wanted to make everything about all the things that separated me from the world. Once I noticed the pervasive reality of the veil, I, I couldn't unsee it. Even though there were times when I would have liked to, even though there are times when I still would like to. So the question I have for you all this morning is, what do we do? How are we to live when we live with the awareness of these divisions? How are we to truly live if we can see the veil? Moreover, how do we make sense of the fact that other quote-unquote people of faith claim that there is no division between the world and me? And they use religion to either justify their blindness to these divisions that their ancestors created, or they use religion to justify the veil through a warped theology of sin, telling us, telling people like me, that sin is the cause of our suffering. How do we live in a world such as this? It is not easy. And I don't want to pretend that it is. And I will not stand here and lie and tell you that it is. But I think, as I reflected upon this question, that, that this is one of the reasons why I loved Jeremiah, just wrestling with this difficult question of standing in between two worlds. Because, you see, I know that most prophets are reluctant. Rarely is someone excited to take upon the role of prophet to their own community. But Jeremiah is very clear that at times he feels that God is forcing him to do this work. God is forcing him to see the veil that he otherwise would not choose to see. In chapter 20, verses 7 through 9, Jeremiah writes, Lord, you enticed me and I was taken in. You were too strong for me, and you prevailed. Now I'm laughed at all the time. Everyone mocks me. Every time I open my mouth, I cry out and say, violence, destruction. The Lord's word has brought me nothing but insult and injury constantly. I thought, I'll forget him. I'll no longer speak his name. But there is an intense fire in my heart, trapped in my bones. I'm drained trying to contain it. I'm unable to do it. You see, Jeremiah didn't want to see everything that God had him, that God had given him vision to see. He didn't always want to speak the words that God had given him to speak. 
but he had a fire trapped in his bones and there was nothing that he felt he could do to contain it. So he spoke. He too was caught between two worlds, the world as it is and the world as it could be or the world as it ought be. His sermon that we read in chapter 7 to the Israelite community was given between the fall of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire. This was a politically turbulent time in Judah's history, a time in which the nation grasped for any sense of security. They lived with the fear and awareness that they could be taken. It was during this time that some people within the community began to believe that the temple itself was some sort of guarantee of God's presence and protection, as if God were bound to the temple despite the apparent disobedience and corruption. As it says in verses 3 through 4, this is what the Lord of heavenly forces, or this is what the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, says, Improve your conduct and your actions, and I will dwell with you in this place. Don't trust in lies. This is the Lord's temple, the Lord's temple, the Lord's temple. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, my mom said something three times. This was a sign that she was not going to say it a fourth that I needed to pay attention. Don't trust in lies, verse 8 says, yet you trust in lies that will only hurt you. In Howard Thurman's amazing work, Jesus and the Disinherited, there's a chapter he writes on deception. Thurman writes that it is a simple fact of psychology that if a person calls a lie the truth, they tamper dangerously with their value judgments. Further, he writes that the penalty of deception is to become a deception with all sense of moral discrimination impaired. Someone who lies habitually becomes a lie. Someone who lies habitually becomes a lie. It is increasingly impossible for them to know when they are lying and when they are not, end quote. God says, do not trust in lies, and when you trust in lies, those lies will hurt you. The lies that the ancient Israelite community had come to believe were that their covenant with God was made secure through their rhetoric and performance of rituals in the temple, and that the transformation of their hearts the spiritual formation that should prompt them to be holy because their God is holy wasn't necessary because they believed themselves to be safe as long as they had the temple. The temple had become an object of worship rather than a sacred space for worship. So in this sermon, Jeremiah is confronting a community in crisis because their rituals, their practice of religion had shifted to focus on performance but not transformation. They worshipped a place and were sure to worship God in that place because they believed that God would protect that place. And therefore, God would protect them from capture by the Babylonian Empire. 
They had fallen victim to the lie that their religion, their covenant with God, didn't require the sort of personal transformation that would inconvenience them or force them to change their behavior or to see things they did not want to see. God says, do not trust in lies, and when you trust in lies, those lies will hurt you. To be sure, Western Christianity finds itself in an eerily similar situation to the context of Jeremiah. Some denominations, some churches, some so-called Christians have come to trust in a multitude of lies that uphold the veil that exists between the world and me. They trust in these lies so deeply that they have become the lies that they tell themselves. They are no longer able to distinguish between their lies and the world as it is. They believe the lies of patriarchy, that men are God's chosen leaders, yet they make excuses when these men fail at some of the most basic tasks of their vocation. Whether they are a president, an actor, or a CEO, their failures are somehow always circumstantial and never quite their fault. These men and women who believe the lies of patriarchy, even though in response to the most significant public health crisis of our lifetime, research shows that countries led by women had systematically and significantly better COVID-19 outcomes and suffered half as many deaths on average than those countries led by men. Mm. Why do we have so few women in elected political office in America? Can I get an amen? Thank you. God says, do not trust in lies. And when you trust in lies, those lies will hurt you. Some people who claim to practice Christianity believe the lies that white America is under attack, that white people are experiencing reverse racism, and that the system is rigged against them. The consequence of this belief led someone to drive to Buffalo and murder black folks in a grocery store. These people fail to understand the distinction between believing themselves to be white and the logic of whiteness the racial caste system that places whiteness as a central marker of humanness. They fail to understand that for the vast majority of white people, the idea of whiteness is a cruel optimism and will only provide psychological rather than material benefits. This thinking is not new. Martin Luther King Jr. in his 1965 speech, Our God is Marching On, he wrote that, quote, if it may be said of the slavery era that white men took the world and gave black folks Jesus, then it may be said of the Reconstruction era that the Southern aristocracy took the world and gave the poor white man Jim Crow. And when his wrinkled stomach cried out for food that his empty pockets could not provide, he ate Jim Crow a psychological bird that told him that no matter how bad off he was, at least he was a white man and better off than a black man. And when his undernourished children cried out for the necessities that his low wages could not provide, he showed them the Jim Crow signs on the public buses and in stores, on the streets, and in public buildings, and his children, too, learned to feed upon Jim Crow. End quote. My friends, 
why, while we do not have the obvious signs of Jim and Jane Crow segregation around us, the lies of white supremacy, the, the trauma of white supremacy are still evident all around us. When a rural white community suffers from preventable medical conditions, high infant and maternal mortality, and a lack of medical facilities, yet this same community refuses to vote for universal health care because they believe the lie that health care is a privilege and not a human right, they are suffering from the trauma of white supremacy. At least the poor black and brown people they think, in their community, are worse off than they are. When people choose to pay thousands of dollars for private education or move our children to good school districts because they want to give them the best opportunity to succeed in life, yet they fail to ask themselves how and why the wealthiest nation in the world can have some primary schools that are among the best in the world and others that are worse than those in developing countries. You see, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The roots of our education system can be traced back to racial integration when white people who do not believe in the racial equity, people who do not believe that black people and other people of color were as smart as white people, people who believe that having an integrated school would prevent their child, their child, from being the best, these people did not want their tax dollars to go to fund schools that were integrated. So they sued the state of Texas. And when the case went to Supreme Court, the majority of the court sided with the racist Christian white families. Thurgood Marshall actually wrote the dissent on that case. He said this case will resegregate schools in 40 years, and he was prophetic in his prediction. This is why our local tax dollars go to our local schools rather than being equitably distributed among all the schools in the state. This result, the results of this decision created the de facto segregation that we see in schools today. This legal decision laid the ideological foundations for parents to see good schools as those that are in predominantly white neighborhoods and schools that were predominantly students of color were seen as less than ideal. God says, do not trust in lies. And when you trust in lies, those lies will hurt you. Far too many Christians and Christian churches believe the lie that the religion of Jesus, that Jesus' spiritual path of radical compassion doesn't require personal transformation that moves us towards a love ethic. They believe in the lie of cheap grace and that their Christianity is transactional, that if they believe in God, they will avoid going to hell. In this way, they have replaced the aspirational nature of the religion of Jesus with a kind of religious consumerism. You see, in a consumer society, we create ourselves through things, and we change ourselves through changing our things. For these people, radical transformation consists of going on a diet, or exercising, or perhaps moving and changing careers, changing objects around us without truly changing the subjective self. The purpose of religion for them becomes something to make them feel good about themselves and to be happy. It becomes God's job to help solve their problems. After all, God is their personal Savior. God is their 
personal savior. Or rather, we might say God is their personal trainer focused on their individual well-being. Given this, it is no wonder that far too many Christians are unable to see the veil that exists between the world and me and perhaps the veil that exists between the world and you. God says, do not trust in lies. And when you trust in lies, those lies will hurt you. So my friends, what do we do? How do we live in a world such as this? In Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, he writes that we are called to struggle, not because it assures us victory, but because it assures us an honorable and sane life. Now, there is truth in his argument, and I do believe that the lives of those of us who see the veil, who call attention to the lies, those of us who seek to hold those in positions of power accountable for their actions, for us, The struggle will be a constant companion in our lives. It will be, as Paul writes, a thorn in our side. However, the religion of Jesus shows us that the struggle to move society to see us as full human beings, the struggle to pull society towards love and justice is not about our individual sanity or about our individual honor. Rather, it is because we see beyond the veil. Because we see beyond the veil, we know the truth that the veil does not have to exist and that its existence causes all of us to suffer. We see how we are all interconnected, and so we see how our suffering is interconnected. We refuse to believe the lies that created the veil. We choose to see God in one another. So when we feed the hungry, we do this because we see God in the person who is hungry rather than blaming them for their hunger. When we give water to those who are thirsty, we do this because we see God in that person rather than blaming them for the situations that led to their thirst. When we welcome the stranger, we do that because we see God in the stranger rather than asking them why they crossed the border to be in our space. When we care for the poor and the sick, it is because we see God in that person. And then we seek to dis dismantle the systems that normalize this level of dehumanization because we see God in that person. We are moved to love that person. Love is the will to extend yourself, to nurture your own or another spiritual growth. Love is an act of the will, and it will take our collective will to dismantle the veil of white supremacy. And for those of us, for those of you who are white, you will have to extend yourselves in ways that will make you uncomfortable because white dominance feels comfortable. White dominance feels normal. We're socialized to be that way. And for those of us who are not white, for those of us who are people of color, we will have to learn to extend ourselves in ways that will make us feel uncomfortable because white dominance feels comfortable. It feels normal. So you see, love, love is the only way we can live in a world that seeks to believe the lies that it tells about itself, the lies that it tells about those that are not seen as humans. Love allows us to see the lies for what they are. 
Love for God, love for each other, and love for ourselves is what binds us together so that we can do the work required to dismantle the veil that exists between the world and me and between the world and you. Amen? Amen.